Please bow your hearts in prayer with me. Father, we, uh, we thank you for this great opportunity we have to sing of your name and your fame this morning. And we confess our unworthiness, but thank you for your grace that it's not us as a bunch of people who have accomplished great things who are here, but it's people who only stand because of what Christ has done for us. And that it's only in Christ that we're able to stand. It's only in Christ that I'm able to say anything of worth. So Father, we we pray that this time that we come to Your Word would be fruitful. That You would shape us, that You would inform us, and that You would instruct us. It's It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, this might be the the worst possible way I've ever started a sermon, but I want you to think of your job. Right now on this Sabbath day, think of the work that awaits you. Think of what it is you'll be doing on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of this week. Think of the, the title of your job. Now stop thinking of that, and imagine that a a friend, a, a child, a niece or nephew, an acquaintance says, what do you do for a living? And the, the, the first response is, it might be what your job title is, that's so rich with jargon from your work that only you understand it, and maybe the HR department, maybe. And then you're, you're talking to this person, and they have, they have no definition or understanding of what, a, what an analyst or whatever your managerial title is. They have no way of processing what that means. So they say, okay, what is that in English? And you, what does it mean that that's your job title? What is it that you do? And so you, you grasp, you try and explain this in, in a way that's more than just, I answer emails. Or if you're a teacher, like, I babysit with a purpose. Um, I, I, no disrespect to teachers with that, but I, I know enough teachers to know that that's sometimes how you feel. And uh, you try and think of, how do, I, how do I say this with meaning? Now, in a similar vein, as, as most, of, if not all of us in this room are Christians, when you talk to your non-Christian friends, and they say, what do you do as a Christian? Like, how do you answer that? Are you like, oh, I, I go to church, uh, we read the Bible, I tithe. I hope we have a better answer than that, because that's not very exciting uh, to someone who doesn't know what any of that means. They're like, wait, you pay extra taxes? Like, what does this mean? Like, I thought your church was called a free church. Why do you have to pay to go there? Um, And we, 
See, we hooked you guys with that free church thing, and now, now you're stuck. Um, what does that mean? I, I hope that we, we talk in a way that expresses the freedom in Christ that we have, the joy that's available with having our sins forgiven, the peace that transcends understanding. I hope we're able to express those things when we talk about what it means to be a Christian. What is it that we do as Christians? We're going to be, these next several weeks, talking about practical spirituality. And what is practical spirituality? And we're going to talk about things like uh, that we that are part of everyday faith. Loving others. We're going to talk about dealing with fear, with listening to God, with forgiving how much of this life we, we go through uh, under the weight of unforgiveness. We're going to talk about reaching out. And this morning we're going to start practical spirituality. This series we're going to start with, with an umbrella category, if you will. And that's following Jesus. That as Christians we follow Jesus. That's what we do. Now, I'm an audio-visual learner. And so when I'm getting ready to do something for the first time, whether that's uh, making a, a meal or a dessert, uh, I bake about once a year. Um, and uh, I, I try to do so the best of my ability. Or, or home improvement, as, as I've discussed my woes with you guys of how profoundly bad I am at that. I like to find articles that have a lot of pictures or a YouTube instructional video that goes step by step. And what I've learned is that the internet is a jerk. (laughs) Such a jerk. And here's what I mean by that. You go to the internet and you type in YouTube, how do you change a tub drain? And there's this like five minute video and this guy's like, you get this tool, you've never seen anything like it. It looks like like if aliens existed, they'd use that to experiment on people. Um, And you use this tool and you take out the drain, you put in just a little bit of putty, it doesn't take much, you put in the new drain, voila, it's done. You're like, oh, this is so simple. Next thing you know, like you're repenting of words that come to mind. Um... (laughs) You're calling friends that are plumbers, and, and you're sending them pictures. This literally happened a few weeks ago um, in my home. And they're like, boy, I, you've tried everything I would try. Looks like you need to burn down your house and hope for the best with insurance. Because silly old me likes old homes that break. Um, and you, what you have in YouTube is someone who's done it a million times, And they're using tools that you don't know how to spell and have never heard of. And so you go to Ace. They don't know where to find them. And even when it's done right, it doesn't look close to when their right is done. Um, And my version of right has a gap here, a smudge there. And even though it's lopsided, it's generally stable by the time I get done with it. But it's very obvious uh, that my inability has shown through versus their ability. 
And we have this problem in our culture where we see results and so we want results. And this can become excruciatingly frustrating, especially when we're first trying something. And when we try to follow Jesus, this can be excruciatingly painful because sometimes we treat the Gospels like a cookbook and we try to become a carbon copy of the disciples or a carbon copy of Jesus. And that's kind of the point. We're told to be an imitator of God. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Um, But if we read the Gospels like we read a cookbook, it's going to end bad. We're going to have friends with holes in their roofs, Uh, we're going to come across disgruntled fishermen that we try to get to follow us and explicitly. uh, The IRS is going to be coming after us uh, or or they're just not going to like it when we we say, oh, your taxes are in a fish in that lake. Um, And then some poor blind guy is going to have mud on his eyes from our spit and the police will probably get involved. In the Gospels, we read several instances of Jesus coming up to people and saying, follow me. And a lot of times they do that. They drop what they're doing and they start following Jesus. And this is encouraging to read. It's inspiring. It's a little bit convicting because we evaluate on what level are we following Jesus. But it also feels a bit removed. Because that was a different culture. It was a different time. That was a time in which someone could go and say, follow me, and people would drop in what they were doing and follow. So what does it mean to apply that passage today? Those, those, all those verses in the Gospels. We know it's ridiculous to treat the Gospels like some sort of instructional blog or video. But the question remains, and it's what we're going to spend our time on this morning, how do we follow Jesus? In our efforts to follow Jesus, we need to treat the Gospels appropriately. They're not that instructional video. The point for us is not to do exactly what Jesus did. Um, Instead, we need to read the Gospels as though we are part of the crowd. We are part of the multitude that's watching Jesus. We're not one of the twelve disciples. We're one of the multitude watching Jesus. We're a person who needs to hear what Jesus is saying. We're a person who sees Jesus heal someone and say, I need this power in my life. We're a person watching the cross, not knowing all that it means, but knowing that there's a benefit in it for us. We don't read the Gospels to know the answer to a bracelet that was popular to wear in the 90s, but to do what the crowds were doing, to learn from Jesus, to desire to see Him change us, our lives, our hearts. And we go there to follow Jesus ourselves. We go there to marvel at Jesus and to learn from Him. And so to answer this question uh, with the Gospels, um, we're going to answer it in two ways. 
And the first way we're going to answer how do we follow Jesus is we're going to take a look at then. So take a, taking a look at then, we see the example of the rabbi. So this scene we've alluded to where you know we see it in Mark 1. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark 1. And in Mark 1... I'll start reading in verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting their net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me. I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. This type of thing, it happens with Matthew, it happens with James and John. Happens with Nathaniel, it happens with Philip. Jesus says, Follow me. They stop what they're doing, they follow him. And this seems all of the sudden they start calling him rabbi. I'm going to oversimplify this, okay? Rabbi is teacher. Jesus was a rabbi, John the Baptist was a rabbi, the Pharisees were rabbis, and they all had disciples that followed them around. And then this rabbinical life, what the rabbi would do is they'd have their disciples and they would sit and they would talk Scripture together. It would sometimes feel from the outsider's perspective like an argument, the way they would get it going. They would ask a provocative question. They'd start dialoguing over the Scripture, wrestling it. But another part of this was a teaching style that was very much one of imitation. And the goal of the disciple was more or less to become the rabbi. And so they would eat their food like the rabbi did. They would walk the way the rabbi did. They would imitate the mannerisms and the the expressions and the sense of humor of the rabbi. The vocal tones. They would imitate those of the rabbi. They would want to become the rabbi. That was the goal. And then one day they would have disciples and those disciples would want to become like them. And in becoming like them, they would gain traits from their rabbi and from that person's rabbi and so on and so forth. And so Jesus is rabbi, and the disciples are walking around imitating Jesus and trying to do what they think Jesus would want. And sometimes this goes comically bad. Like when James and John asked Jesus, uh, after getting told they couldn't stay in a Samaritan village, they say, Jesus, would you like us to call down fire from heaven on them on your behalf? I imagine a lot of times Jesus took really deep sighs. No. I'm about to die for those people. That's why we're going to Jerusalem, so they can be saved. But the goal is to become like them and to be as much as possible. And so when we have Paul saying, imitate me as I imitate Jesus, Paul is keeping Jesus central. And as we follow Jesus, what we do is we don't say, oh, Matt Chandler's so great, let's study Matt Chandler. Or fill in your podcast or author. Um, Instead, what we do is we come around together and we all say, let's have Jesus be our rabbi and let's study him, let's study his comings and goings and let's get to know him as much as we possibly can so we can imitate him in today's world. So that we can... We can, uh, and I'm going to start jumping ahead of myself here a little bit, we can have the same passions and cares as Jesus. 
So follow me in the words here of Mark 1. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Was an invitation to these guys who were fishing. The words follow me were an invitation to all the disciples to drop what they were doing and make learning about Jesus their job. Following Jesus, learning about God through Jesus became their job. So then we fast forward to near the end of Jesus' time on earth. It's a few weeks after the very first Easter. Jesus meets with the 11, the remaining 11, you know, the 12 minus Judas Iscariot, meets with them on the mountaintop and says, go therefore and make disciples. He says, go do what I've been doing with you. And so when the disciples heard Jesus say, go and make disciples, I have a friend who asked this question that I found really helpful. What did they hear? What did they understand it to mean to make disciples when Jesus told them to do that? I think the clear answer is they looked back to what Jesus did with them. And so we have, we look at the example of the rabbi, but we look at how Jesus made disciples. For me, one of the clearer pictures of how Jesus made disciples has come in Mark 1 and Mark 3. In Mark 1, we just looked at those verses, verse 17, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Follow me, and a process is going to take place in your life as you follow me, that you're going to be changed, and your life's work is going to be different than it is now. That as we follow Jesus, He works in our heart, He changes our affections, He changes our desires to be in line with His, so that we're no longer just going about doing our work for our kingdom. We're no longer building the kingdom of us, but we are working on the kingdom of God. And so he says to Peter and Andrew, follow me and you're going to stop working on the, on the kingdom of Peter and Andrew and you're going to start working on the kingdom of God by being fishers of men instead of fishers of fish. And then we get to, to Mark 3. I'm a big fan of having Bible reading plans. But for me, there's a weakness in the Bible reading plan. Sometimes it can become so goal-oriented that we get more excited about checking the box on our YouVersion app or on our piece of paper that we're using as a bookmark to make sure we don't lose our place than we do about being shaped by the Scriptures themselves. And sometimes for me, that goal or of it becomes the main deal to the point where when I'm going through the Gospels, I'm like, oh, this is very familiar, so I'm just going to read this quickly. And I get to a passage like Mark 3, 13 to 21, and I think, oh, this is the disciples. And so I jump right to the Bible trivia mode. Let me see how many I can name before I read it. And I always forget like Bartholomew and Thaddeus, uh, you know, I'm like, all right, there's like two or three Johns, there's a couple James, there's a Judas or two in there, there's a Peter and an Andrew, how many does that, you know, I start doing that, 
And when we do that, we lose out on the process of what Jesus is doing. So when we do that with Luke, we could miss the fact that Jesus stayed up praying the entire night before he called the disciples. And when we do that with Mark, we miss a lot of Jesus' method of disciple-making. So we're going to look at verses 13 to 15. We're going to skip the names. And he went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles. And listen to this. So they might be with him. That's their first task as a disciple, is to be with Jesus. Following Jesus is highly relational. We can't make it an academic endeavor. We can't keep it so dry. We need to be relational. The point of them following Jesus was for Jesus to change them. The point of us following Jesus is that Jesus would change us and have an impact on us. You think of people you've done things with. Think of those of you who have ever worked at a camp and the bond that's created between people that work at a camp together over the course of a summer or go on a short-term mission trip together or think back to uh, when you had free time and you did road trips and that, that common bond that, that can even come from just a couple shared meals. We've been doing desserts for eights and we do this every now and then. And you have a group of people that you get together with for, for dessert or supper a few times, play some games and talk spend unhurried time together, and there's a bond that comes about from that. Now imagine three years of traveling together, and your mode of travel is walking. And so you're walking and camping together, basically. This is like Pastor Austin's worst nightmare. Is that okay that I said that? No? I'm sorry. We'll reconcile tomorrow. Um... And the bond that comes from that and, and the amount of impact that happens relationally. So the first thing is that they are spending time with Jesus. And I have two questions for you out of this. One, are you spending time with Jesus? Are you drawing close to Jesus just to spend time with him? And two, if you're a mature believer, we'll say you've been a believer for 10 plus years, maybe five plus years. You've been walking with Christ. Who are you seeking out and desiring to spend time with so that you can help them spend time with Jesus? Who are you going to look at and say, Come, let's spend time with Jesus together? Who are you helping to spend time with Jesus? So Jesus spent time with them. And then what does it say? That he might send them out to preach. He might send them out to say, Jesus is your Lord. This isn't preaching a sermon. This is proclaiming the arrival of Jesus. He's sending them out. And we see this in Luke 9 and 10 as Jesus sends out the 12 and the 72. And then at the end of Jesus' ministry on earth, in Acts 1, Jesus ascends into heaven. They're in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit comes. They all start in Jerusalem. Peter, like Paul, made it to Rome. Andrew went to what we now know as part of Russia, along with Asia Minor and Greece. 
Thomas is credited with taking the gospel to southern India. Philip, Matthew, Bartholomew were all in Syria, Persia, and parts of northern Africa. Following Jesus means we we get moved around sometimes. And we've seen that happen a lot with this congregation. We have these boxes all around, and several of them are people who grew up in this church who are now in various parts of the world. And And Jesus also gives them authority and an office. He calls them apostles. He calls them sent, sent, uh, apostles. We can think of as sent ones, but we also know the office of apostleship that these guys started the church. He might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And some of you might be thinking, oh, boy, I don't do that very often. It's, a, it's not part of my daily walk is casting out demons from people. I you know, we, one time we were in Haiti and, uh, with my youth group, and uh, we, had a, we, we were at a youth conference, and, and this girl was demonized, and they prayed for the demon to leave, and it did, and she, she repented of the sin she was walking in, and we get back to the dorm, and this girl in my youth group looks at me 100% sincere. It, well, first one guy goes, what happened? So I explained what happened, and then this girl in my youth group looks at me and goes, do we believe that? <laughs> yes. Yes, we do, and, and we walk through Scripture and, and how we, we see this as part of the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. But let's think of it this way, that the disciples went out and they were undoing the effects of sin. They were undoing the effects of sin. They were, they were talking about reconciliation with God. They were, they were taking back ground that the evil one had claimed. They were lessening Satan's kingdom and expanding God's kingdom. And let's look at another passage that, that tell us, tells us a lot about what Jesus did with the disciples. And we're going to go all the way over to John 15. This is the night that Jesus is betrayed. As I read John 13 through 17, I, I feel like they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is telling them the words of John 15. Um, this is a very familiar passage. I'm just going to read verses 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I in you. This is Jesus talking. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Think with me. Are these words only for the disciples? Is this only written down? Did John only record this so we could know of a conversation that does not involve us? The answer is clearly no. So let's think through this again. Who are the apostles? Who are these disciples? Well, they're the apostles. They're the ones that started the church. They're the leaders. So are these verses only for leaders? Are these only for pastors, elders, and teachers? Again, I think the answer is clearly no. So then who is this for? No, it's for us. It's for believers. This is Jesus talking to the disciples, but he's also talking to us that we need to abide in Christ to bear much fruit. 
John 15 is a lot of things. It's a deep and rich text. But for now, I want you to think of it as as this. Jesus is telling them here what he set out to do in Mark 3. In Mark 3, he said, we're going to spend time together. And I'm going to send you out to preach and cast out demons. And here he's saying, abide with me, spend time with me. And I with you, let's have this two-way relationship. You pray, you read the Bible, you, you hear from God through the Spirit inside of you, through other believers, through Scripture itself especially. Abide in me, spend time with me, and bear fruit. Be sent out. The desire expressed in John 15 and, and what we see as Jesus' intention in Mark 3 is that we would spend time with Jesus and bear fruit. And so that's a look then. But today we can't just walk down the road. We can't literally walk the countryside for three years with Jesus. Because he is seated on his throne in heaven. He's no longer incarnated, walking around. We have the Holy Spirit So what does it look like now? Let's look at now. How do we follow Jesus now? First, let's not reinvent the wheel. We stand on the shoulders of giants who have followed Jesus for centuries. And so what I want you to do is I want you first to follow with someone. And maybe you follow with some of these giants of the faith that have gone before us. Um, Pastor Dave is, is kind of a history junkie. Uh, he loves history. He, you know, if you go into his office on his desk, you'll find books by people uh, who have been dead for centuries and their sermons and their biographies. And that's something that really shapes him. So I asked Dave, I said, Dave, if somebody wants to follow, follow God, follow Christ with a historical figure, who would be the best person? <laughs> I asked him like five minutes before the sermon, just about. Um, what Dave is recommending is that you find some biographies. Uh, John Piper has a great series of short biographies. Uh, And maybe you find a biography and you really like that person, whether it be Charles Spurgeon or George Whitfield. A couple others that that Dave recommended uh, for figures to study would be Hudson Taylor or Amy Carmichael. And look at these people. Learn from their lives. And after you learn from their life, if you really connect with them, then find the things that they wrote. But know that they wrote them a long time ago. So it's not going to be an easy read. Uh, It's going to be weighty. It's going to take a while to adjust to their language, but follow with with a historical figure. And sometimes it's encouraging as we do that to see how little following God has changed over the years. They still felt that the culture was opposed to them. They still needed God. They were hoping. They were dealing with a lot of the same issues in their faith that we deal with. One key to following Christ now is realizing that similar to the five love languages, you know, this material by Gary Thomas, that that we give and receive love in different ways, 
that we also experience the love of God in different ways. There's some of us where all you need to do is put us outside and we're going to feel closer to God just because there's not a roof above us anymore. And there's others that you, you give them. I have, I have a friend that one night I, I walked to his house uh, and I was talking to drop something off and he's sitting in a recliner with one of those lap desks and he has Louis Burkhoff's systematic theology and J.I. Packer's concise theology opened in front of him and he, and he looks like a kid in the candy store. So some of you, it's through reading deep theology. Some of you, it's through conversation. Some of you, it's through music or arts. But for all of us, I hope that it would be in community of some, some fashion. So find the way you connect with God. Find other people that do that. And, and then connect with God together. Follow Jesus together. And the other is very simple. Just look around you. Find someone that's following Jesus well and just go up to him and say, can you help me follow Jesus better? Can we start meeting? Can we study Scripture together? Can we pray together? One of the great resources of this church is the maturity of the congregation. Take advantage of it. Or you could just find a friend and say, hey, let's do this together. Let's grow together. We're at about the same place. Let's challenge each other to grow more. But do this with a relationship, not in podcast alone. This year we're talking about the, this year's the 500th year of the Reformation. And now the Reformation grew the solas, sola scriptura, sola gratia, you know, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to God's glory alone, do your devos alone. No. That's not one of the solas. Follow Jesus together. So we follow with someone, and then we share in the cares of Jesus. We share in his cares. Another way to say this is simply let Jesus change you. As you spend time with a close friend, as you spend time with the people around you, you tend to develop similar tastes. You start to like the same movies. You start to like the same music, the jokes, the food. All of this can rub off on each other. So let Jesus rub off on you. Like what he likes and detest what he detests. If you don't currently have a reading plan for the Bible that you're working through right now, maybe over the next week or two, try to read the book of Mark or the book of John. If you read the book of Mark, one chapter a day, just a tiny bit more than that, you'll get through it in two weeks. If you do two chapters a day, one week. Book of John, three chapters a day, you'll get it through this week. And so spend time and don't just, don't just read through it to read through it, but read through it looking at what Jesus is doing, who He's talking to, what are His reactions to the crowd. As I've studied Jesus, the things that, that jump out to me are that Jesus cares for the vulnerable. You know, he's, He wanted to go rest, but He was stirred with compassion because He saw the people as sheep without a shepherd. In Luke, we see Jesus spending a lot of time with the marginalized. 
The Samaritan is a hero of a parable. He spends time with women who at that time were a lot of times pushed to the side, especially in spiritual matters. He touches the sick. He cares for those who have been violated by misuse of religion. He proclaims the kingdom of God. Another thing is he cares for children. I'm going to ask uh, Gary and Kim Bryan if they'd come up. As we grow with Jesus, sometimes it's going to take us to places we didn't expect. And Gary and Kim, they, you guys have been coming here for a couple of years, and, uh, and you guys are like a year or two away from empty nest. One year away from empty nest. And some people grieve that. Some people greatly rejoice in that. You know, you know no offense to the kids, but, but there's a freedom that some people look forward to. We'll call it that. Um, why don't you tell me, you guys are getting ready, uh, you're in the application process with something called Safe Families. Why don't you tell me what is Safe Families for Children? So Safe Families is a Christian ministry. It was founded in 2003 in the Chicago area, and since then it has spread to over 70 cities, about 25 states, and four countries. Um, It's been in Des Moines since 2015. And so what it is is an organization that partners host families with other families in your area that are going through crisis. So the goal of the organization is to prevent um, neglect and abuse before it occurs. So a host family would come alongside, um, maybe it's a single mom with two kids, um, a grandmother that's taking care of a grandchild. You would take them into your home and um, either full-time, on weekends, whatever is set up with the, the parent, Um, And then you maintain a relationship with the mother or the grandmother. And so you kind of, you're doing life together. Um, You are taking care of their child so they know they have a safe place. And then you are bringing the child to church with you, getting them involved with um, playgroups, with church friends, or anything like that. Then you're also maintaining a relationship with the parent or the grandmother um, and and just pouring into them and loving on them. Mm So why, why do you save families and why do it now? Well, I mean, with empty nests coming up, I thought that's what you do when you get rid of kids. You know, they're out of the house, you get more. Or not. <laughs> why or not? not? <laughs> um, you know, it just, it's something that's been on our heart for about, probably about 10 years. When we were in Kansas City, we were involved in inner city ministries where you just go down on a Friday night and you just love on kids. And um, they would talk about bring, bring the husbands, bring dads, because most of them don't have a dad at all in the picture. I mean, the majority do not. So uh, it's been on our heart for a long time. We moved to Des Moines. We've been trying to figure out where to get connected, um, how to serve. And this came up about a year ago. I saw the, um, a little blurb about it, and it just hasn't left my mind. And one of the things recently that came up was... Um, Watching, when you watch your kids love on other kids, um, when they reflect to somebody else the love that you've been, you know, spending your life pouring into them, and then you see them reciprocating that to somebody else, um, it's an amazing experience. 
And, you know, we want to, before we are empty nesters, uh, we just thought, you know, it's a great time to start that, um, make it a part of our lives, and then um, hopefully, you know, that's what the future will hold for us, is just loving on as many families as we can here. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move through the questions a little, a little more quickly. No, that's okay. fine. That's fine. <laughs> but one of the, when I, I talked with Gary and Kim this week, and, and I asked them, why are you doing this? And she said, why wouldn't we? You know, it's just, there wasn't even that moment of, oh, is this a good idea or not? But there's a, there's a need, there's children that need this. This is similar to foster care, but it's not foster right. care. It has, uh, I describe it as it has the right amount of red tape. Uh, and there are, there are a lot of children in the foster care system that don't necessarily need to be, but there's, there's not much else out there. And, and safe families is before foster care is required, this is a good alternative to right, keep people out of that. So I'm going to ask you, what is the need for safe families in Des Moines? I think the need is for people to consider becoming host families. The Des Moines metropolitan area is around 600,000 people, mm-hmm. and safe families has... 13 host families in the Des Moines area, and we're looking at being number 14. Yeah, uh, and you shared with me, we're, we're going to go ahead and put up the next slide, Kyle. Uh, if you're thinking about getting involved, Joy Greer is who you guys have been working with, right? and she just had, she's been starting to meet with Des Moines Public Schools, and what did she say about our church and our location? Um, when she found out where Westchester was located, and she's like, is that right across from Hoover High School? Yep, that's where we are. This right in this area is a great need. So she was super excited when she heard where we come to church and about maybe seeing if we could all get involved. Mm-hmm. And how would you recommend people getting involved with Safe Families? Um, one of the things we did was go to the website, um, safe-families.org, start watching some of the videos. <laughs> Because you watch the videos of the, the lives that have been changed, the child, the parents, um, the host families. Start watching them and, and just see what God does with your heart. Because it, it's hard to watch it and not think, how can I help? What, you know, sign me up. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I would recommend people. This, I, I started to become familiar with this ministry about four years ago. Uh, I would recommend, even if you don't think you're able to be a host family or you think maybe I'm too old, maybe I'm too young, go and check it out if you're remotely curious about it and just be praying for how God might want to involve you in this. All right, thank you very much. So we care about what Jesus cares about. Part of this means that we take obedience very seriously. Um, I've been doing perspectives this year. And one of the things we learned about in the history of missions was this movement called the Moravian Missions Movement. And it was a small church. Or it started as just a small group of people and, and, and grew quite quickly in Europe. And they realized there, there was a whole world out there that didn't know Jesus. So they started sending people out to anywhere they could go. Um, and there's a, there's a lot to it that's really exciting that was fun to learn. But one of the things that stuck out to me is they didn't buy luggage. They didn't buy a suitcase or a trunk to put everything in. They bought their casket. They put all their belongings in their casket, and they left with the anticipation that they would be buried in their casket wherever they were going. There was no second guessing. There was no putting the hand to the plow and looking back. It was just following Jesus 
whatever that meant. And so we obey Jesus. We take up our cross. We proclaim the gospel to all creation. We make disciples. Our obedience matters. So as you read the gospels, know that Jesus meant what he was saying. There's uh, this time in the Gospels where Jesus is talking with a group of people and someone says, well, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, but first I need to go say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says, whoever would follow, whoever puts their hand to the plow and looks back is not fit. And our guy says, well, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, but first let me go bury my dad. Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead, follow me. And someone said, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. And Jesus goes, all right, just know this. Foxes have holes, the birds have the air, I'm homeless. So if you're going to follow me, you're going to take that on. And sometimes we can get so trapped in what it means to follow, into all the supposed rules in the category of follow, that we miss out on the me. And we hear Jesus saying, follow me. And we're like, oh, what does it mean to follow? And we lose that the Lamb of God is saying, follow me. And when we look at following Jesus, what does that mean? We did a look then, we did a look now. It means living in light of the worthiness of Jesus. Living in light of the worthiness of Jesus. That your life says Jesus is worthy. A few weeks ago we had a guy at Perspectives teaching. He helped take the gospel. He was part of the team, one of the first teams to take the gospel to Mongolia. And while they were in Mongolia, they lost a child to SIDS. And they buried that child on a hill in Mongolia. And put on the gravestone in the local language, Jesus is worthy. Is Jesus worthy? Does your life reflect the worthiness of Jesus through whom all things were created and by whom all things are held together? As we sing in Christ alone, as we sing trampled over death by death, is our, does more than our singing declare the worthiness of Jesus? That he's worthy of, of moving and our suitcase being a casket. He's worthy of talking to our neighbors. He's worthy of saying, I'm willing to get a phone call at any moment that an infant is coming to live in my home for an undetermined amount of time because they need a safe place. And the time may come where we send out an email saying, hey, the Bryans need a crib and a stroller and a car seat. Can anyone help out? Is Jesus worthy of these things for you? I hope he is. Let's pray. God, you are worthy. And I pray that you would expose in our hearts the places where we question that. And the parts of our heart that are not surrendered to you.
And God, that you would help us to follow you, to follow Jesus, that we would be transformed and we would have the joy and the privilege of telling others to follow Jesus as well. And it's in his holy name that we pray. Amen.